I will try to tell you, well, not exactly what will happen next, but how things happen next. Coming to you from the many worlds of the multiverse. It's the podcast that's never the same twice, and always two things at once. This is Burning Man Live. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Burning Man Live, the little podcast that could. I'm Stuart Mangrum. Leaving no trace is one of Burning Man's 10 principles. Now, if you're new to Burning Man, I should let you know that Burning Man has 10 principles, and we call them, unironically, the 10 principles of Burning Man. Now, of these 10, you might think that leaving no trace would be one of the easier ones, right? I mean, it doesn't seem to take a lot of mental gymnastics to wrap your head around that one. To me, it just seems like good common sense or, or common courtesy to pick up after yourself. But in fact, it's become one of the more contentious and controversial of all of those 10 principles. Now, on, on the one hand, there are critics who say that the idea of leaving no trace is just not enough anymore. And maybe even, I don't know, a little nihilistic. That as we evolve from a single event into a nonprofit and into a global movement, we should be stepping up our game from zero impact to positive impact from leaving no trace to leaving a positive trace. In fact, there are some who even suggest we should rewrite the principle to use that language, leaving a positive trace. Now, I love a good argument about words as much as the next guy, um, probably a lot more. But if you read the actual text and not just the headline copy, it's already there. And I quote, <clears throat> uh, Vav, by the way, in the future, when I quote from the 10 principles, could you lay down a little like celestial harp music or something? I think we need a music bed. <laughs> We clean up after ourselves and we endeavor, whenever possible, to leave such places in a better state than we found them. Now, on the other hand, there's a more serious critique and one that's not just based on semantics, but on science. And this one comes from people who say that Black Rock City is really nothing more than an orgy of consumption, followed by burning and more burning. In other words, it's a carbon disaster. And that makes any claim to holding environmental values uh, at best window dressing and at worst hypocrisy. And they may have a point. The world has changed a lot since 2004 when the principles were first put together. More so since the first desert burn in 1990 and, and more still since those hippie yippie digger days of the San Francisco Suicide Club, which spawned the Cacophony Society, which led in a very real way to our early years in the desert and the origin of those principles. Now, that 1970s flavor of environmentalism doesn't really stand up anymore. It's been eclipsed by the more recent threats of global warming and climate change, which is one of the reasons why Burning Man Project has publicly committed to a very ambitious sustainability roadmap that aims to make us carbon negative by the year 2030. It is a massive effort and a huge undertaking. Think about turning a city of 80,000 people around into that sort of a program. It's, it's like our space program. But we're in it to win it, and we will talk more about that in an upcoming episode. The thing about principles is that they're just that, principles. Ideas, values, they're not rules or commandments, but more aspirational. Leaving no trace is a practice, and like all practices, it takes practice. It's an endless learning process for all of us, not just crusty old event organizers like me, but all 80,000 citizens of Black Rock City, of which every year a quarter to a third of them are new. They're there for the first time and not necessarily familiar with our culture. And 
probably a few of them are climate change deniers, who knows? Um, but the principle of radical inclusion says they're all welcome to. So we're not here to change people's minds or force them to accept our values. All we can do is hope they do, or at least act like they do when they're at a Burning Man event. Now, despite all that, one thing that's undeniable is that as an organization, as a community, we're getting really, really good at picking up after ourselves and managing our waste stream. And that's at all of the 100 plus Burning Man events around the world, and especially in Black Rock City, our little pop-up city, which is actually a little bigger than Santa Fe, New Mexico. That thing that we build every year in the desert and then make disappear without a trace, just like magic, only harder because magic isn't real. Today, we're going to take a close look at how that works, at leaving no trace in action, and, and talk to a Burning Man organizer who's been doing it for a long time. But first, a word from our sponsor. Here at Burning Man Live, we love the outdoors. We love to go camping and hiking and seeing everything nature has to offer. But a few years ago, I had to slow down a lot because my feet started hurting. I was getting older, and there were aches and pains everywhere, and I just couldn't go the distance anymore. You only have one set of feet, you have to take care of them. But recently our producer Vav turned me on to some medical quality footwear that has completely turned my life around. I'm talking about Civic Responsibility Socks. The only socks available made entirely out of 100% Civic Responsibility. These socks are incredible. They support, they lift, they cradle, they comfort, they organize neighborhood cleanups, they deliver groceries to the needy, they fund scholarships for minority students, they build houses, they register voters. It's everything you could want in a sock. The secret is microfibers made out of locally sourced civic responsibility. It's actually grown in people's backyards 100% natural. That civic responsibility is woven into a mutually supportive pattern in which each part of the sock supports every other part. The result is an incredibly comfortable step and a functional democracy. And these socks are stylish. I'm not a dapper guy, but wherever I go now, it can be a meeting to organize a benefit for artists or at a fundraiser for homelessness services, and people stop me and say, hey, is that civic responsibility? And I say, yes. And they say, great socks. And then we start a community garden and the world is just better, you know? So if you want to go the distance, trust in a sponsor we really use and try products like Civic Responsibility Socks, which are made of locally sourced, all natural civic responsibility. And right now, special offer. If you go to our website and type in the code civic responsibility, Nothing will happen unless you make it happen. Give it a try. Thanks, caveat. All right, folks, our producer and co-host today is Logan Mirto. Logan is the newest member of the podcast team, but he is not new to Burning Man. He's been part of the community since 1998. He's one of the leaders of our Department of Public Works, or DPW. In any other year, we would just see his taillights as he was heading out to the desert to spend 100 days or more out there building and breaking down the event. And if you were out there and you want to reach him on the radio, you'd put out the call to Cobra Commander. Hey, Logan, how you doing? I'm good, Stuart. Good to see you. How you doing, man? Excellent. You know, I've never asked this before, but I got to know, how did you get that, that playa name or radio handle or whatever you call it? Why oh, Cobra Commander? My call sign. Back in 2006, I had just assumed the position I'm holding now, being the manager for the crew. 
I didn't have a call sign. I never had a Playa name on Playa because I think when your name is a little unusual, people don't just automatically want to call you something else. There wasn't any danger of confusing me with a different Logan. So I was just Logan on Playa forever and the Playa name never found me. But in 2006, because I was on the crew in a different way and I was on radio, there was kind of this pressure to get a call sign assigned to me. And it was just hanging in the air. In DPW, culturally, you'll get one if you do something dumb or if you get caught doing something stupid publicly. So I was on my toes just waiting for the wrong moment to find me and for me to get saddled with something. So there's the, the context there. There was this guy and he was dating a friend of mine. I had a lot of respect for my friend and was trying to support her choices. But the dude, he was doing that thing where he was already starting to give you a hard time before he'd kind of earned that credit with your friendship. He was just leaning into giving you a hard time in any moment. I could see him doing that to me and it was problematic. All that to say, I went with this friend and her partner at the time. We'd gone to see Snakes on a Plane in the theater, and one of the closing uh, numbers had a band do a music bit for it, and the, the band's name was Cobra Starship. And I remember saying something about that being a name that I found ridiculous. He, that evening, had gotten really hyped into the idea that Cobra Starship was going to be my handle just because he wanted to give me a hard time. The following morning, I'm at the DPW morning meeting, and I'm on stage in front of hundreds of DPW, and I'm trying to give my spiel, and he just pipes up. He was like, oh, yeah, I wanted to tell everybody we got a name for him. And I was just mortified because this was going to be that moment. He was going to call that out and it was just going to stick. I was going to be named after this band, after this random moment forever. I, I went completely white and I'm, I'm looking at him. I'm watching this moment play out in slow motion. And he says, what were we going to call you? Your name was Cobra. And I said in just the most powerful voice I had in that time, I said, Commander. And the crowd went nuts and drowned out whatever objections he had at that point. And it just stuck. I never had a G.I. Joe affinity. I was a little too old for that cartoon or for those toys when I was a kid. But it's been Cobra Commander ever since. You know, I'm glad you dodged a bullet there. It is a little, yeah. Cobra Starship. Far worse. Cobra Starship, yeah. has all <laughs> kinds of strange implications. All right. So uh, tell us about the show you put together today. Oh, well, to promote a stunt that he's calling an environmental hold my beer moment, and also to talk to us about Moop, and that's matter out of place, and about player restoration in general. We've got the restoration manager for Burning Man's Department of Public Works, Dominic Tino, known to his friends as DA. DA, how you doing today, man? I'm good. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Why don't you tell us how you got started with Burning Man and how you ended up uh, getting involved with environmental restoration? Oh, man, there's kind of a gap between the point where I, I found Burning Man and actually joined Restoration, which was formerly known as the Cleanup Crew. Yeah, it was back in 1996 when I was working as a graphic designer in New Jersey, which is where I'm from. My boss, he, he was from the Bay Area, and he had read Greetings from Burning Man, The Great American Holiday by Bruce Sterling in Wired Magazine of October 96. And he asked me, Dominic, have you ever heard of this thing called Burning Man? It's a fire and art festival in Nevada. I think you would like it. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, never heard of it. The very next day, the Wired Magazine article was on my desk with a sticky note on it that said, Dominic, I think you should look at this. <laughs> I opened it up and I was like, oh my God, what is this? These are my people. I'm reading this article, and this was a very clear invitation to me. In that moment, I had to just take a deep breath. There was this part of me that was talking to myself that said, Dominic, you must go to this. 
and I, I had to answer myself. It was like that, that moment of truth, you know, I, I said, yes. And I knew it. And it was like this contract I just all of a sudden had with myself. And I kind of had the shivers, even just having that thought, I'm going, that's it. I'm going. So that was October. So it wasn't going to happen again for the next year. I went onto the Burning Man website and that was back in the day when the Burning Man website was super mysterious and seductive. It almost didn't tell you anything <laughs> about what Burning Man is. Two gallons of water per person per day, like that, socks, you know, but they left so much the imagination, which is very interesting now because it's almost like we have to expel out everything for everybody. But back in the day, you were really empowered to like fill up the void with imagination of what potentiality could be. That was it. I was hooked. I'm going. No spectators. That was still like the, the rallying cry, which has since become you know more friendly. Participate. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to be a spectator. I'm not going to be a spectator. I'm not gonna, that was my mantra. Burning Man 97, when I landed in Reno, Nevada, I remember checking into the hotel and turning on the news. And the first thing on the TV said was, Will Burning Man be canceled? News at 11. I was just floored. And I'm like, I did not fly across the country for my destiny to be canceled. I just pushed through and just drove to Burning Man. There would be cars coming back and everybody would just be waving. Oh, hi. Just waving. The vibe got really friendly as I started approaching Burning Man. I made that turn and then I could see the people and the lines of cars. I get greeted. Hey, welcome. Welcome home. That was the homecoming. So you came out to work. What did you do? I didn't know if I would call it work. You know, <laughs> I was going to Burning Man. And I was introducing myself as Dominic. And I just happened to have these black wings on. Slowly but surely throughout the event, people just started calling me Dark Angel. And it took a while for me to actually grasp it. And then there was definitely a culminating event where people were like, this is your name. Yeah, and that's how I became Dark Angel Blackrock, DA. Fantastic, man. So that was your big coming to Burning Man moment, and that was how you got pulled in. Tell us how you got into environmental restoration for the event. How did you end up staying after? How did you end up being a part of what takes it all apart? I was working on Drake of the Dragon, which was the big giant metal uh, dragon art car, one of the first back in you know, 2000 for Lisa Nigro. And we got invited uh, by the Department of Public Works to join what was then known as the cleanup crew. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. There was about 30 of us out there, just kind of in the middle of nowhere. They had us line up and do the line sweeps and look for moop, which is matter out of place. That could have been a cigarette butt, could be a piece of glitter, wood chips, plastic debris, metal debris. We were the ones out there after everybody left. There was this perception of Burning Man. This is back in the days when it was so much about rebirth and destruction, the cycle. But for some reason, I think people just couldn't fathom coming to Burning Man and leaving no trace. That language was still bubbling forth uh, at that time. But the cleanup crew of the Department of Public Works in 2000, we could tell that the community cared. We would be walking through and we knew what was there because we were at Burning Man. Also, we knew when we came across a camp that really didn't try hard at all. Sometimes you'd still see the red keg cups <laughs> rolling around or something like that. And we were like, ah, who these people? 
we cleaned up left no trace but it was also something we learned in the field and we were changed by it i know i was there's this kind of csi involved and there's kind of archaeology involved you can read the patterns of the fly and see what was happening this is where the kitchen was this is the bar this is where the showers were we got good at reading the fly and understanding where we were for the most part we knew people cared I had an, another aha moment. This is the meaning. I had to just go deeper. It was, you know, I went to Burning Man. I moved out to the Bay Area. I got involved in all different projects. I was in Pepe Olazan's Burning Opera for a number of years. And I was still looking for my thing. And I'd never expected my thing to be Leave No Trace. It was a calling. I really could have missed the science if I wasn't paying attention. Returning the Black Rock Desert to its natural beauty in that expanse was really where I got in touch with nature. I grew up in the suburbs and my family were from the Philippines. We, we didn't grow up camping. I didn't grow up outdoors. And it was almost this reset to nothing in the Black Rock Desert that really got me much more in touch with my relationship with nature and the planet. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah, the Playa Restoration Team does amazing work. I've been on the Playa Restoration Team myself and I've been a part of that whole experience. Of all the volunteer teams on Black Rock City, Playa Restoration's morale is exceedingly high. It's pretty outrageous, the amount of pride that people take in getting that place back to zero. I, I know that if you'd told me when I was younger that some of the best times of my life would be wandering through a desert wasteland, picking up other people's garbage, I, I would be both shocked and probably a little offended. But it is. <laughs> it's an incredibly fulfilling experience. Can you tell us why you think that is and when how morale stays so high on, on the Playa Restoration team? There's a number of things that happen. It's very meditative being out there. Everything else is gone. There are no more distractions, and it's just us and the playa. When Burning Man's happening, there's this feverish pitch. The man's burning, and it's just so loud, and all the music, everything is happening. As things start to shut down, things get quieter, and as, as vehicles start moving away, things get quieter, and all of a sudden, it's just quiet again, and it's just us. As we line sweep, for move and we're finding things there is just something where we see ourselves in this process of cleaning up and of restoration and we're processing where we go next there's a lot of us who we're out there temporary and then we have to leave even this is going to end and then we go back out into the world and then we find each other again there's a lot of processing and people are processing their burn and it's actually a very safe place to and, and burns can be quite traumatic. And there's a lot happening. And you can learn so much about yourself. Restoration actually, who knew, became a really great, safe place for people to process what they're going through and kind of come down from the big burn and the chaos of the big burn. It's actually quite nurturing. The other part of it is in the identity that I was able to forge with Playa Restoration. When I became the manager in 2005, it took us from being the cleanup crew to Playa Restoration because I felt like that word really spoke much more to the esteem and the pride that we had for what we did. It was really that we felt our duty was to restore the Playa to its natural beauty. I created the logo. I felt it, it spoke much more to the, to the hero's journey symbol. I really wanted to bring that out in us. So 
player restoration in a lot of ways has grown. You know, we, we grew from when I was joined, it was 30 people and then 75, and then we're 175 now. We operate somewhat with the pride of a moop army in a lot of ways. And we are charging out into the open playa and we raise the energy level that leave no trace chant that we have and that pride and, and really try to get it that high. And then we wander the desert for the next two weeks in time for our BLM site inspection. That distinction between the language of cleaning up after others, as opposed to restoration, which is about the land, that's a huge one. Stuart. Yeah, you mentioned the BLM inspection. And I'm, in addition to just being philosophically correct, and one of our principles, leaving no trace is actually essential to us keeping our permit out there. Tell us a little bit about that government inspection process and, and how that works. The Bureau of Land Management tests us every year on our use of the playa, and they hold us to a very strict standard. We are allowed one square foot of moop per acre. One square foot of, is, you know, just imagine like a record album cover. And then an acre, imagine a football field. The average size moop that we find during inspection actually is under a quarter of an inch. Wow. Um, You're talking about micro moop. Think about what gets left behind. They think, oh, somebody left a couch or an album cover, but it's really the little stuff that matters, right? Everybody is really good about leaving no trace. They take out all the big stuff. And you imagine everything that everybody brings to Burning Man <laughs> and then how much square footage that actually covers. What if you just took all of Burning Man and you just shoved it all into a dumpster? How many dumpsters would that take? It's unfathomable. It's maybe 80,000 <laughs> dumpsters. The fact that when we're finding moop, that it goes down to less than a quarter of an inch in dust. And that's the hardest part about leaving no trace. We are playing against the playa. We're playing with, for, but also the playa is doing what the playa wants to do. And that means it's dust storm or it's raining. It's covering things up. But the dust is the hardest part. And that's why it's never really about, oh, these people just they weren't very good at, at cleaning up this year. It was mostly about the degree of difficulty and, and the conditions. Yeah, less than a quarter of an inch. If you think about that, back to that square foot, you take that record album cover visually, if you just threw it in a blender and, and then threw it out over the course of a football field, my team has to go find that micro move, those bits, and, and account for every bit of it. That is the degree of difficulty that we're looking at. And Burning Man's 3,000 acres. That's like 3,000 football fields. That's approximately 156 million square feet. So the fact that we're finding moop a size of a quarter of an inch for an area that is 156 million square feet, I really can't emphasize enough how incredibly impossible and yet we achieve it every year. Yeah, just to be clear, that 12 inches, that's just a square foot flat, not a cubic foot, right? That's correct. That's not a lot of moop. You mentioned dumpsters. The Bureau of Land Management suggested helpfully in the last environmental impact statement, a possible mitigation of just bringing dumpsters for everybody. Would that make your job easier? Why don't we just do that? No, like that, that would actually have the opposite effect. The community does a really good job of leaving no trace. One of the issues that a little bit more nuanced is when people drive home. There's a phenomenon known as road debris that happens in the world. And it's when things aren't properly secured or things break, when they're tied to the, your vehicle, your truck, or they fall out. 
sometimes when people are leaving, maybe they bought like not so great quality trash bags and they filled all their trash in that trash bag. And then they had no place to put it except to strap it to the roof. And then that trash bag, because they're driving at like 75 miles per hour, obliterates in the wind and opens up. These are things that happen and they're not done on purpose, but we've been raising awareness for people to really secure their load and make sure that their trash bags are good quality and that everything is tied down properly so there isn't any road debris on the highways. I'm an amazing highway cleanup crew that races out to the highways right after the event ends and they make sure that the highways are swept clean. The thing is, when that happens, 80,000 people leave the desert and they're driving there's this perception that the problem is worse than it actually is. Because once you see one thing break open or you see something on the ground, they've all seen it and it looks terrible. It's a safety issue that should be taken seriously and we're raising awareness. But when my cleanup crew picks up the moop, the moop on the highways has actually been going down every year. We fill up like a, a dumpster or a dumpster and a half at this point every year. And that's not a lot for the... 88 miles of road on 447. The community does really good. However, that perception, there was uh, some complaints about that on the highway. So the BLM thought that the best solution for that would be for us to have dumpsters on the playa for everybody. This would negate us being a leave no trace event. And so our principles, we did an estimate of what would it take to have dumpsters on the playa. It was going to be an incredible amount. It would cover up so much territory that would be just for trash and it would not be safe. It would be dirtier and messier than it actually intends, than the solution. It just wouldn't work. It would, it. it would be a mess. I like what you're saying about how that would negate Leave No Trace as, a, as an effort. And I, and I think you're right. One of the most poignant lessons I ever learned about trash was that when you throw things away, away isn't just some magical void. When I was forced to first take my first bag of garbage away from my first Burning Man, that made me deal with the ramifications of my behavior for that week, right? It made me actually have to deal with the consequences of my actions in some way. That being a part of the Burning Man experience is so crucial to keep people on board with what we're trying to do there. You're talking about road debris. It feels like a really natural segue to talking about what you've got coming up, which is DA's BlackRock Moopathon. You want to talk to us about that a little bit and tell us what you've got planned for your summer here? Oh, oh man. Okay, now I've done it. Today's BlackRock Moopathon. This could be one of the greatest things I've ever done. It could be the worst thing I've ever done. This is a fundraising stunt for Burning Man's Environmental Sustainability Initiatives as defined by the Sustainability Roadmap, which was published last year. But this goes back to Stuart's intro, leave no trace and leaving a positive trace. I do believe those are the same thing. However, I also think Leave No Trace is just the beginning. And I believe that it's time. We scored our best score in the BLM site inspection ever last year. It was a near perfect score. We only had one wrong in the inspection. That would mean one test point out of 120 test points came in a little over the standard. And that was by two inches. And then the MOOP map was also the greenest MOOP map that we've ever had, which means that it was the cleanest that we've ever had. It's beyond time that we build upon our reputation as being the largest practicing Leave No Trace event in the world. And it's time that we move towards a much more sustainable event. 
we've outlined initiatives that we're going for, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take some money and resources to make these things happen. I want to jumpstart this initiative. I want to do it by leaving no trace. I'm going to walk to Burning Man from Wadsworth along the Highway 447 to Gurlach to 34 and enter the playa at 8 Mile, which is the usual Burning Man entrance. I'm going to be cleaning up the entire way. It's going to take eight days and it's approximately 88 miles. I've set the goal at raising $80,000 because Burning Man has 80,000 participants. I would love a dollar from every participant. If everybody chipped in $1, this is totally sustainable. I felt it was a cute goal. It was a cute number. 80,000. I'll have a small but efficient crew to make sure I don't die out there. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe I'm going to be doing this, but I do believe the community itself has made me a believer in Leave No Trace. From somebody who's been cleaning up the Black Rock Desert for 20 years, I believe this community can do it. They've been proving it to me all along, and we've been getting better despite the fact that we've been growing. When I first took over Playa Restoration, we were still something like 30,000 people, and now we're at 80,000. And we scored our best Leave No Trace ever last year. We're going for it. It's time. In this year without Burning Man, I feel like this is something that I really want to do. I'm also celebrating my 20, what would have been my 24th burn by doing this and really giving back to the community. And I, I hope the community supports today's Black Rock Meetathon. That's uh, fantastic. Thank you. People will be able to find oh. out about this through Burning Man social media, et cetera. Yes, yes. I will be going live in the field and there's going to be some surprises along the way. This is going to be an event as we're cleaning up. So you can follow me along. A couple of questions here. If you have locals in the uh, Northern Nevada area who want to participate or help out with the Moopathon, can they do so? Right now, we are still in the time of COVID and global pandemic. I have a small but efficient crew have been cleared by me. I can't take on any other volunteers at this time, but cool. you can cheer us on. That would be great. Donate. Also, we put it out there that if people in solidarity are so inspired, would like to clean up simultaneously as I'm going to be doing so for eight days, that would be wonderful. People from all over the world wanted to also clean up at the same time. Related question. Are you in communication with the local Paiute community along the way? because you will be passing through tribal lands on that journey. Yes, affirmative. Uh, yes, we, are, we have been in talks with them. Things are looking good. We also have approval with the uh, Nevada Department of Transportation. We seem very excited about, about our plan. We want to make sure that uh, we are respectful of the, the local communities coming through. Mostly, we just plan on leaving no trace and being ninjas about it. Yay, ninjas. Hey, I've got a, a question from our pseudo studio audience. Uh, Dustin wants to know what are some tips that you have for camps to do a better job of getting their stuff out, cleaning it up? You know, the number one is everything comes down to line sweeping. And that's when you line up six feet apart along the width of your camp and loop sweep from lots of different angles because how you perceive move can change by the direction of the sun and also, you know, the way the wind's blowing. Borders can be pretty fuzzy, so it's really important to watch those borders and to get out into to those areas and actually get to know your neighbors. Also, your, your front porch of your camp, moop out into the streets because what's trending right now is moop along the streets, but the rest of the city is actually doing better. 
overall, I'm really proud. Six feet apart. That sounds strangely familiar. You could line sweep and still be socially distant. Perfect. How about getting ready for the event? I know that a lot of troubles come from people, for instance, doing too much of their camp construction after they get there, not cleaning out their trailers and getting all the pine duff out of it and all that stuff. Are there any other pre-event preparation tips that can people bring last move out in the first place? You know, it's interesting. Sometimes people throw everything, they just like, just pack it up. And then sometimes it sits that way until the next year. And sometimes people taking shortcuts and things were really moopy when they packed it up and then they drag it back out and it's still moopy. And now they just brought it back out for the next year. So that's one thing to just be mindful of. Honestly, the, the community just keeps doing better and better. Once upon a time, everybody used to bring their projects out there and do all the cutting on the playa. And wood is the number one move. It always has been and always will be just because that is the medium we seem to be working with out there. You know, we're building things out of wood and we're burning things. But what's been helping us a lot is that people have been doing their pre-build before they get to the playa. They've been preparing for it and they do all their cutting before they get to the playa. And that way the moot stays in the shop and then they can just sweep up the shop floor and, and it's fine. And when they bring it out, all they have to do is assemble it. Over the years, that has really been bringing wood debris down. It's still the number one move, but it's not much more than any of the other categories. Tell us about the catapult. <laughs> I understand you, the resto team has created their own, what is it, an Olympic sport? Or is oh, it a training exercise? Oh, okay, yeah, you're talking about the trebuchet. Uh, the trebuchet is essentially an ancient siege weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Used to fling boulders at the castle that you were attacking. We have one. <laughs> that that belongs to Johnny America and Stinger. We used it basically as like our leave no trace show. <laughs> to what we would do is we installed the trebuchet on the playa, and then we hooked up a piano to it. And essentially, when you pull the pin of the trebuchet, we would fling the piano after we lit it on fire. On fire, yes. <laughs> on fire. Because Burning Man. Because Burning Man. <laughs> we lit on fire and we would fling a flaming piano 300 feet across the playa. This is just the beginning of the show. I actually have a team waiting to clean it up. This is kind of our version of like this Olympic sport. So I have a team of five people in a truck with brooms, rakes, shovels, magnet sweepers, just ready to clean this up. As soon as that thing lands, it is fair game to clean up. So we pull the pin of the trebuchet, and then the piano gets flung 300 feet across the playa, and then boom, with piano keys reverberating, and, and it makes a really funny sound, and it just makes a big mess, and the crowd laughs. Then you see the resto team race out to it and clean it up. I timed the team with a stopwatch. When you're looking at a piano that is broken on the ground, what are you looking at? You're looking at your piano keys. You're looking at wood. You're looking at a piece of the metal. They pick up all the big pieces first, and then we slam dunk it into a burn platform that we have conveniently located right there. Anything that's burnable, we throw it in the fire. And then we pick up all the little bits of wood splinters. We use the magnet sweeper to pick up any metal, and then we use the rake to see if there's anything that we couldn't see that is now covered by dust. Then we line sweep it again, 
when the team calls me over and I say they're done, I hit that stopwatch. I want to say that it takes a flaming piano six minutes and 37 seconds <laughs> to make disappear. You know, if you just do it, it can be done. Have a plan and leave no trace. They raced another team because we had a second piano that year. So we had another team race them. And it was only a difference of seconds. We wanted to show fire restoration. We don't want to say we don't want you to make that mess. I'm old school. I want you to make that mess, but I want you to know how to clean it up. As long as you can, <laughs> you know how to clean it up, you're being responsible. You're being self-reliant. You're leaving no trace. Another question. I know that you've been a bit of an ambassador for leaving no trace out into the Burning Man's regional community and out into local communities, helping various events, city agencies learn how to maintain and instill L&T practices. Any thoughts or stories that you want to share based on taking this out into other communities? It's really inspiring to see people doing this, honestly, on their own. I think that inspires me the most. I was helping out clean up in Reno after one of the protests, and it was really inspiring to see people out already doing that. It really reaffirms my place in all of this and inspires me to keep doing it. This was a calling, and honestly, it's the community that makes a believer out of me. I've had the pleasure of working with the community in South Africa for Africa Burn and in Israel for Midburn and Flipside, Austin, Texas, oh, in my peeps. Helping the cleanup, it's really just a beautiful thing. And when people do it, I feel like I can just keep doing it. Beautiful. DA, I wanted to say thanks for coming on and thank you for your passion for uh, restoration, both in the world and at Black Rock City. And uh, thanks for doing this weird stunt with your summer. Your efforts are seen and appreciated. Yeah, thank you for having me. And everybody, uh, please support DA's Black Rock Moopathon on GoFundMe. Starting on June 26th and running through July 3rd. And you'll have a GoFundMe page up and you'll be in Burning Man social media. Affirmative. And on Kindling. And coming soon to a channel near you. Excellent. We're going to bring it to you as, as, as much as we can. Well, I can't wait to hear what documentation you bring back. That's about all the time we have right now, but we still have time for a story. Because we always make time for a story. Last up in our program is a little thing about Moop. Something of a cautionary tale from the way, way, way back times from our friend Coyote. Hey, Coyote. Greetings, everyone. Yeah, I just thinking of DA just walking down the highway and I don't know, Forrest Gump keeps coming to mind and <laughs> run Forrest. So yeah, we were talking a little bit earlier about dumpsters, and you were also talking about the environmental impact statement. I was talking with Logan just the other day about this very concept of garbage tending to beget garbage, and people will tend to follow a lead. And one of the reasons that we were all pretty aghast at the BLM saying that we should bring dumpsters back to Black Rock City, we were saying, well, haven't we just spent the last 20 years pretty much proving that we can do this without dumpsters and bringing dumpsters would actually exacerbate the problem because what you resist to perpetuate. What I want to talk about was something that happened in 97 that really proved this. 97 back then, it was uh, Will Roger was the director of, operation, of desert operations. We had only one or two dumpsters that got delivered to Black Rock City back then, and we were going to hide them back by the DPW depot so that they wouldn't be attracting garbage. We were trying to trumpet the leaving no trace principle back then. And 
this guy delivered the dumpster a day early and he didn't really know what to do. And so he went to the nearest person who was just standing there, could have been a participant, said, hey, where do you want this dumpster? And the participant said, well, I don't know. How about right there? So the dumpster got deposited right there at the mouth of the exit road of Black Rock City 97 with 15,000 people leaving. So you know the rest of that story is the dumpster became the place to put the garbage. And one dumpster caused one of the largest messes that we've had on quite a while. That dumpster also got plenty documented by the press. It got all over the radar is see what Burning Man is doing, see what kind of mess they're causing. We really had a issue with the dumpster. So the story I'm gonna tell is the time my car turned into a dumpster. I have a car out there that's a Plymouth Volari that I've had on the playa since 97 and very quickly became a DPW Mad Max road machine. It has been bashed and crashed. It doesn't have any windows anymore. It doesn't need back doors and it's our fun rider. In 1997, the car that I drove out to the Black Rock Desert blew up on me. So I had to buy a car in a pinch and a local sold me a 1979 white Plymouth Volari that used to be a cop car. And it was a square toed clunker, but I bought it for 500 bucks. And it very quickly the next year became uh, a DPW Mad Max Road Warrior machine because it had lost its windshield in the DPW parade. And then the rest is history. Once you lose a windshield in the DPW, your car becomes a DPW Road Warrior car. Well, it's been out on the playa, still running to this day. Several years ago, we were at a morning after party on Sunday at a camp called Camp Carp. And it was the Black Sabbath pancakes, which is our traditional way to cure hangovers. Well, the party was raging all afternoon. And that year, the Camp Carp lead was a new guy that didn't quite know how to handle his garbage. So he came to me with this big garbage problem and said, may I put a bag of garbage into the backseat of your car? I said, sure, I'll help out. Well, he proceeded to load probably six or seven bags of garbage into the car and loaded it all on me. So I had to drive out of that party with a car that not only looked like it was right out of the demolition derby, but it was loaded with a bunch of garbage in the back. Well, to make the plot thicken that evening on Sunday night, my sister and brother-in-law had ride shared an RV across the country from Michigan. And they were trying to find the person that they'd ride shared with somewhere in Black Rock City on, after the temple burn. The only information they had was a piece of paper that he had left with Playa Info that said, you can find me at my tent. It's on the three o'clock side of the city and it's got a rainbow clown wig on the tent. That's all he had. That's pretty much out of a two square mile area to search through because it's just one side of the entire city of Black Rock City. So David was in the process of packing the RV. So he said, can I borrow your Valari to go find this guy? Because we can't strand him. He's our only ride back to Michigan. So he gets in the Valari at around midnight and goes off to the three o'clock side of the city. And at around two in the morning, he comes walking back into the camp. His mission has not been accomplished. The guy had already come to our camp on his own. And boy, my brother-in-law was hopping mad. Well, what happened to the Valari? Well, the front front's wheel seized up because the bearing gave out. So not only did the car break down like it always did, but you couldn't even push it out of the road because the wheel was locked. And so now we have in the middle of Black Rock City where everybody's trying to leave, a junker piece of crap looking car full of garbage blocking the road. Well, you can imagine, I was imagining how many curses that the participants were yelling out, who's the idiot that left the car like this that was full of garbage. Long story short, a week goes by, we could not find that car. 
it's my car. I've got all of my crew out there looking for the Volari. It's everybody's favorite car anyway. Where's the damn Volari? Nobody finds it. But we did notice that in the middle of one of the streets on the three o'clock side was an enormous pile of garbage bags that needed to get rid of. And you know where the rest of this story is going. So I had still had high hopes to find the Volari somewhere. And it was sort of like letting a stadium parking lot empty after the game so you can find your car type situation. And a week had gone by. And finally, one of the guys that was on the trash train, which is the name of the crew that gets rid of all the residual garbage bags that the one asshole camp leaves behind, started unloading the bags into the truck. And lo and behold, the Valari was inside the pile of the garbage. And it was a mess. It was broken bags, rotted meat, maggots all over the car. And to drive the point home, one of the heavy equipment guys came by with a forklift and forklift the thing into a dumpster that year. And there's still a picture on my refrigerator door and my trailer of the Valari full of garbage sitting in a dumpster. And uh, we still were able to clean that car. And that's still one of the favorite cars, the DPW. And it still rides today. That's my story. Nice trash talk. <laughs> Thank you, Coyote. And, and thanks, everybody. That's our show for today. Remember to follow us, like us, review us, and subscribe. Our website is live.burningman.org. And you can find us as Burning Man Live on Facebook and the Twitters and all that. This show has been a production of the Philosophical Center of Burning Man Project. Our executive producer is Daryl Van Ray. Our producers are Andy Grace, Dickie Davies, and Logan Mirto. Our technical producer and chief of human cyborg relations is Michael Vavracek. Our liaison to the digital spirit world is Devin from the internet. Our graphical guru is Tanner Boger. Our promotional spot this week was written by Caveat Magister. Interstitial music provided by Dylan Blackburn and that damn band. Our intro theme was cooked up by Jay Knizzle and our correspondents are you. Please send us your show ideas, letters, suggestions, and comments to live at burningman.org and your donations are always appreciated at donate.burningman.org. Thanks, Larry. <laughs>